0: Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Tim Ryan, U.S. Chair and Senior Partner of PricewaterhouseCoopers, one of the top accounting and consulting firms in the world. Now, you don't get elected by your partners to this kind of position if you're not absolutely at the top of your game. And Tim sure is. He is one of the smartest guys I know. But that doesn't mean he has all the answers. In fact, in his words, he drives himself crazy with listening. He's always seeking out more data points and drawing out differing perspectives. It's really at the heart of how PwC serves their clients and formulates strategy. And you know, that willingness, and I'd go so far as to say eagerness to listen, has also empowered him to make some really bold decisions. Right after he was elected to his role in 2016, there was a tragic, racially charged shooting in Dallas. Tim listened to his employees' rousing response, and it motivated him to drastically shift his entire leadership strategy to focus on racial injustice. And that's the big leadership lesson waiting for you today. When you know how to listen to different perspectives, you can make even the toughest decisions from a place that's informed and empathetic. And that's definitely the mark of a great leader. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Tim Ryan. Now, as we're learning, Every leader has their own unique style, something that sets them apart. And I'd venture to say that Tim has embraced diversity and inclusion as a business driver. And I'm talking about a real business driver with a courage and passion like no other CEO. Tim, thanks so much for taking the time to have this conversation.
1: Thank you, David. It's great to be here. I really appreciate your work, and I'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: Tim, I have to ask you as we get started, and I want to get your whole story here, but when was that watershed moment that you had that, that, that made you decide to put diversity and uh, equality uh, as your real focus of your leadership?
1: Yeah, David, it's interesting. I had the privilege of being elected uh, chairman and senior partner by my partners in the spring of 2016. At PwC, we're, we're a democracy. It's one partner, one vote. I tell people it's similar to the United States, but a lot more civil. <laughs> <laughs> and I pardoned vote. And and when I ran for senior partner, I had a I had a really good plan. It had we were going to grow, we were going to gain market share, we were going to transform, enter new markets. And if you saw it, I hope you would agree it was a really good plan. Uh, one week into my first week as chairman and senior partner, that Friday was when we had shootings uh, in Dallas. I woke up that Friday morning, got my leadership team together, and it was clear something had happened in our country in the summer of twenty sixteen. And I reached out to our people like many CEOs did at the time. And it was a fairly unremarkable email that I sent. It simply said, I know we're hurting. I know this thing's on your mind. But what happened afterwards was was, was very remarkable. We heard from hundreds and hundreds of our people and one person summed it up best. They said when I came to work Friday morning, the silence was deafening. And for me, it really hit me. Here I'm I'm charged and privileged with leading 55,000 people, and yet they were coming within the four walls of PwC and couldn't talk about it. And it was that day that I threw that really good plan out the window. What I realized on that day is if I can inspire and help our people, remarkable things will happen. Like the, The goals I had in my plan were outcomes. What I was really missing was the fact that you got to motivate, inspire, protect people, and great things happen. And so it was my first week as chairman and senior partner that we really did a major pivot.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And I understand shortly thereafter, you had a firm-wide conversation on on race. Uh, Now, what compelled you to do that?
1: What became clear is at PwC, like many large organizations, we were 10, 15 years into a diversity strategy and programs. We had all the training, all the programs, measurement, uh, different groups for, for 10 years. What became clear in that early part of July of 2016 is that we were uncomfortable talking about race. It, and to the point where literally people weren't sure whether you were the word black or African-American or black and brown. And it became clear we had missed the foundation, the foundation of true understanding what it's like to be in somebody's shoes, what it's like to be black in the workplace, what it's like to be black in our communities and come to work and, and go back to your communities. So we made the decision, uh, or I made the decision, ultimately, to tuck the firm down on July 21, 2016, to have a day-long discussion on race. You can imagine, as a, a young, new CEO, there were many who felt that was a good idea and many who felt it was too risky. One, one Fortune 50 CEO said, Tim, it's going to blow up in your blank, blankety-blank face um, if you do this. We ultimately decided to do it, David, because we needed to understand each other. We needed to get raw. We needed to really understand what it was like. And then as in, by in doing so, that would then set the foundation for, for moving forward. Um, I won't go into details in the day right now, but um, one person said it best. We said in that day, we shed more tears on that day than we did in our 160-year history. And I had the ability to participate in Atlanta and New York that day, and it was remarkable. What did you learn, Tim? I learned that we had people who were coming to work with with things in their minds that I could have never understood. And so again, as a young CEO, my my mindset was: we're gonna every day you come to work, you take the hill, you serve our clients well, you transform the firm, you're hundred percent all in. What I learned is we had people coming to work and we had black professionals who were felt like they were being watched in our hallways. They they felt unsafe. And so here I am naively thinking we are all marching to the same mission. We have a great strategy, great way to go, and people have more basic things in their minds. I learned that some of our black professionals carry their driver's license in their PwC business card, so if they get pulled over, they can show that they could afford the car. I learned that some of our black professionals, when they're going out to play a softball game in Central Park, and they take their work shirt off and they put their T-shirt on, they feel like they're being watched because their people view them as unsafe in the office. I learned that some of our black professionals teach their children and sons how to get pulled over by the police. Things I could have never understood that I now had a, a beginning to understand more and more what was on our people's minds. And I knew we needed to address it.
0: Now, you had one CEO tell you this thing was going to just blow up in your face. And I'm sure, you know, I've been in a lot of meetings internally where, you know, you want to make an effort like this. And people say, hey, come on, Tim, you know, we got a business to run, you know, how do you muster up the courage to do that? Because it looks easy now, but back then you're new, yeah. you know, you want to get the results. How'd you muster up that courage?
1: I David, I had one of my closest friends in the firm. And even to this day, he's still my closest friends. He called me up and he said, Tim, he said, be careful. This isn't what we elected you for. And and again, one of my closest friends and I, I, I asked him to simply participate and learn. I, I think courage is an interesting word. We often associate courage with like taking a hill and loud voices. The courage sometimes is, is a willingness to listen. And, and I really try to listen to all the different perspectives. And what I try to do in that case is, is get this person, I'll call him Fred, that's not his name. I asked him just to participate, learn with an open mind. And what happened is he he, he met me halfway. He, he realized it. So the courage was willing to listen to him and not not get angry, not get mad, not, not get upset. He couldn't see what I was beginning to understand. And part of it was really trying to be that bridge builder to get him to understand. And I think that's really it. Like ultimately you need to make decisions, no doubt about it. And that is a sign of, there's a really important sign of a leader, but decisions after getting a lot of input and appreciating different perspectives.
0: So it sounds like when you get challenged, your first instinct is to listen.
1: Yeah, so I, I drive myself crazy with listening. I am a constant listener. I'm a big believer in understanding the different perspectives of, of how you come at a problem. Ultimately, I'm very willing to make a decision, but it's rare that I would make a hasty decision. I'm a big believer that leaders collect data points, and your job is to accumulate multiple data points and then similar data points. I, I share with people often. I'm without a doubt not one of the smartest people in the world, but I'm a really good listener, and I'm, I'm smart enough to know if there's enough people pointing to something over here, a good thing, a bad thing, an opportunity, a problem, then that's where I need to go. And I find it's its a little bit humbling because definitely not the most intelligent person, but a really good listener, and then you know where to go.
0: Well, you've learned one plus one equals three. It increases your IQ points, which yeah. is great. Now, you, you also, you didn't just focus internally. You started a, a CEOs yeah. Taking Action group,
1: uh, tell us about it. Yeah, so David, after literally the, the day we ended on July 21st, I was walking out of the office and one of our black managers, which is roughly six to eight years of experience, he said to me something to the effect of, Tim, thank you for today. It was great. Thank you for the leadership. I really appreciate it. We need it. He said, but can I ask you a question? He said, with a brand of PwC, what's your role outside of PwC? And And I will admit, David, I thought to myself, God, can I just like breathe? Like, can I, like, <laughs> we just pulled this really risky day off. It didn't blow up. I was getting news from all over the country that it had gone well. But the more I thought about it that night, again, listening, the more I thought about it, he was right. Like I, I sit in an incredibly privileged seat at serving at, ultimately at the confidence of my partners, but, but I have a major responsibility to the communities and our clients. And the more I thought about it, I'm like, God, he is right he is right. And so I began talking to people. I began trying to listen to what is the role of the business community. Again, it's the summer of 2016. It's, we've come a long way in four years around purpose and ESG and role of a corporation. But in summer of 2016, it was way less clear. And so what I did is I began to talking to people that I respected. So I spent a lot of time with David Taylor, the chairman and CEO of Park Gamble. I spent a lot of time with a man by the name of Ron Parker, who is the chairman and CEO of the Executive Leadership Council. And we began talking about what is the role of business. And what we realized is there was a void. There was a void of how do we help all of us become way better at something we are very uncomfortable on, which is the topic of inclusion and diversity. And so that was the ultimate formation. So I listened to our Black professional. I got other inputs. Clearly, we did play a role. And then I got the help of other CEOs.
0: What's really a, incredible about all this is this happened well before the, the George Floyd yeah. tragic incident that happened and, and the other things that have just kind of, I mean, amazed everybody. Just yeah. how can it possibly happen in our, our, our country? And, and now uh, you've made new commitments uh,
1: to fight racial injustice. Uh, what are you doing now? The the thing when I maybe first when I look at George Floyd, it, that that murder and that that killing is is incredibly tragic. What will be even more tragic is if we if we don't use it as a springboard opportunity to improve. What what inspired me from George Floyd's killing, is now all across our country and in many cases all across the world, we're now the majority. We're beginning to understand it's really where we were in 2016. Understanding what the burden that our black fellow black Americans and black citizens across the world are carrying, and and that that inspires me and gets me excited. That because I truly believe the more we understand, then we can care more. And I believe in many cases, and I'll put myself in this bucket. Prior to 2016, I was unintentionally ignorant, and what's happening now is we're really understanding a lot more. And so many millions of people are saying, "I had no idea." And now that I understand, I'm called to do something. And what I'm inspired now is we have the opportunity to do something. So what are we doing um, at PwC? We've made a number of commitments inside PwC on top of everything else we're doing. The two that I'm most proud about to talk about, because there's six, I won't spend all the time going through six. One is we're giving every one of our people 40 hours a year paid time, additional on top of everything else we do. To go spend in the community any way they want, nonprofit, NGO, local policymakers, to really drive their passion to make a difference. That's gonna be 2.2 million hours into our society to go make a difference. And my hope is they'll spend a lot more. The second thing is we've been working very hard over the last several years around driving improvement around recruitment, retention, advancement, pay equity. And I've shared with my people, I'm gonna make that data available to them. In many cases, a lot I'm proud of. No surprise, there's still room for important areas, but I want to share that with our people. who have been working really hard and I'm hoping by highlighting where we have room for improvement, we'll rally around that and work even more better together to go after that. The thing I'm equally excited about, David, is we're, we're creating a thousand person startup. And so what we're doing is we're asking every member of CEO Action, that's CEOAction.com, that's the entity that we started, three years ago, we're asking every member to contribute one or more people for a two-year fellowship where that those thousand people will work together to work on policymaking at the city, state, and federal level and work collaboratively with our policymakers to really drive racial equality and ultimately eliminate racism in, in the United States. And we will have scale like nobody else has ever had it before. Um, I've contributed one of my potential successors as the CEO of that group And in addition to that, um, we have 20 CEOs who have agreed to serve on the governing body of that group, which we're already lined up, ready to go. And we also at PwC will contribute 30 people to that group to start it up right away.
0: As sad as this may sound, I I can imagine a lot of people listening to this podcast and their their eyes are rolling, you know, back, you know, it's like, and because they look at this. Is diversity, inclusion, is sort of some sort of project you do yep. off at the off to the side. How have you integrated everything you're doing with diversity and justice and inclusion? How have
1: you integrated that into, into your business and actually driving results? Yeah, and so it's, and I, I appreciate the skepticism. I, I like to your point. I can understand a lot of people saying, we've heard this all before. Some companies treat it as a side project. At, for us, it's integrated into everything that we do. Just to give you a sense, David, I spend ten to fifteen percent of my time on diversity and inclusion inside and outside the firm. So it is where I spend a significant amount of my time. It's at the heart of everything we do. So when we sit down every year and we're going through our recruitment plans, we we bring on roughly eight to nine thousand people a year, both from campuses and experienced hires. We're talking about representation. We're talking about are we getting the right talent in? So it's part of that. It's not off to the side. Every year when we go through our people plans, it's part of what we're doing. Every year when we go through our talent succession process, it's part of what we do. When we look at how we serve our clients, representation is critical at the team level. When we go through how we deal with our governing matters, it's part of that. So everything we do is part of that. I share with people, I share internally and externally, it is critically important to understand that diversity inclusion is not only, from my perspective, the right thing to do. I think as leaders, we have a responsibility to make sure everybody can succeed. It's what's great about this country, and we have opportunity to create a level playing field for everybody to, to succeed. It's the right thing to do. If that doesn't get you, the business case is overwhelming. The reality is the demographics are changing in our country and our world dramatically, and customers will vote with their feet if they don't have diverse perspectives, and there's a burning need to make sure, in our case, we have diverse teams to serve the very best clients. We have the privilege of serving some of the best brands in the world. And if those brands don't see us as representing their, their customer base, they're going to question whether they're getting the right diverse views. And lastly, our government is changing. They're, go- they're going to, out of necessity, get dragged into this. So it's better to own the issue as opposed to not own the issue. So everything we do, it's embedded in how we run our firm.
0: You know, just to be clear, I, you know, I take my hat off to what you're doing. I'm not one of those skeptics. Yeah, yeah. I, I think what you're doing is you're leading the way and yeah. making it happen here. Now, the other thing is, Tim, you've got, you know, PwC has thousands of clients in, in over 150 countries. You're a great global organization. What advice are you giving your clients on how to handle COVID-19?
1: Yeah. Thank you, David. So what COVID-19 unquestionably has accelerated strategies that were already in existence. So what we're seeing is many, many companies are realizing the transformation they're underway, the digital transformation that they were underway has just been accelerated. So assuming for a second, you're not one of these massively hard hit industries like entertainment, travel, airlines, which my heart goes out to them because Beyond anything they can control, their businesses have been upended. I'll put those into one group. When I look at other companies in other industries—finance, insurance, banking, asset management, manufacturing, healthcare, entertainment—what we're seeing is their strategies have been accelerated. Like it, COVID isn't a change; it's an acceleration. What we are advising our clients is to move deliberately and move quickly around accelerating their strategy because what's amazing is we've all had this shared experience. Having gone through this as a world, take advantage of that shared experience. We're also advising that executives need to be in the details. It is very hard to change an organization that has 100,000 people, 50,000 people, 20,000 people, and the change matters at the human level. And we're, we're advising our clients at the senior management level Be in the trenches with your people, explain to them the changes, explain why you're doing. This gets the hearts and minds. The reality is many, many of our millions of workers around the country and the world, they're worried about their own technology relevance. They're worried about their job security, what it means to them. We're encouraging the drive transformation at the human level. Explain what you can, be transparent about what you don't know. And we think that sets a platform to really get the transformation faster than people are looking for right out of the chute.
0: All makes so much sense. But we just talked about two subjects. We talked about the racial injustice, COVID-19. With all this negativity going on, Tim, you know, how do you keep yourself
1: up? Yeah. So thanks, David. I'll I'll share with you something that I did, believe it or not, um, about four weekends ago. I, I wrote a letter to my partners to be opened in 2040. And the reason I did that is because one of the things that I've come to understand through watching other leaders, learning from other leaders is things will pass. Like in the moment, things always seem massively, massively challenging. And what I did in this letter that I'm going to have my board approve and have it opened in 2040 is lay out what our mindset is right now. And and let's be candid. It's a scary world right now. Many companies don't know what their revenue demand is going to be hundreds of thousands of business will go under or be impaired. It's a challenging time right now. And what I'm trying to do in this letter is I laid out, here's why we made it and we thrive. And we focused on the things that we can control. And we focus on things that are guided by our purpose, whether how we treat our people, how we treat our clients, where we invest, even though it's harder to invest today. So for me, when it gets challenging, I try to take my head up above the clouds because I am in the details. I believe great leaders need to be in the details. And I try to look back at other crises and other challenging times. And we always make it. And we make it because we have the fortitude to look ahead and understand that it'll be okay. And I'm a big believer in your focus on what we can control. I advise hundreds of companies and, and at a personal level, dozens of CEOs. There's a lot of scary stuff, geopolitics, um, the pandemic that we can't control. What we can control is how quickly and how confidently we react to change, and I try to do that.
0: You know, Tim, I, I hope I'm around in 2040 when that 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 letter is published yeah. in the Wall Street Journal, so I can read yeah. it. You know, yeah. now, you've been at PwC for over 30 years, and but I understand you actually one of your your first big job was in a working in a supermarket. What did you learn? about customers and 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 having a growth mindset in that job
1: yeah so david with all due respect to where i went to college at babson college i learned more at the supermarket than i ever did anywhere else the supermarket is still in existence today and my my brother and my brother in law my sister-in-law they all work there still but what, what i learned there first of all is the customer is always right and i learned the humility to know the customer is always right and while i'm now in a client service business it's the same thing like our our customers are the people you have to listen to, and I believe any business that loses sight of the fact that customers are the ones who pay the bills, more importantly, the ones that guide you where to take your business. Um, I learned that at the supermarket, and it's grown to take on bigger things over the last thirty years. But fundamentally, the customer is always right. Around growth mindset, I'll just share with you a quick story that that I've shared from time to time. When I was at the supermarket my sophomore year in college. It was only eight stores this is a family-owned chain. And at the time, they were expanding not to nine, but to 10. They were jumping from eight opening two stores at the same time. And I'll never forget when I was working the floor one day, the, the owner, Pat Roach, him and his brother owned a Pat and Bud Roach. Pat used to come in all the time. He knew us. We knew him. And he, he came up to me, asked me how I was doing. And I said to Pat, I said, I'm doing OK. I said, but I got something on in my mind. A lot of us are concerned you're growing too fast and we're worried about eroding the brand and worried that maybe we're, we're going to lose the, the edge we have of serving the customer better than anybody else. And of course, David, I was a sophomore in college. I had every answer in the book at that point. I had taken an accounting class, an economics class. And, and Pat said to me, he said, Tim, he pointed to the sign out, outside. He goes, that's mine and Bud's name on the sign. He goes, I'm worried about the risk of growing too fast i want you to know that like i don't take that for granted and then what he did is he goes he pointed over to my brother pat who at the time had made his career choice he was going to work there full-time and he's still there today but pat roach pointed to my brother pat and he said what i also know is that if i don't create opportunities for people like your brother pat to stay and grow i'm going to lose them and david That's when I learned why growth is so important. Like growth isn't a number on a page. Growth isn't something you can boast about and talk about, look what I did. If you're not constantly growing, your best talent's going to walk out the door and it's the beginning of the end. And I learned that from Pat Roach. And to this day, I'm very focused on growing our firm, not so I can have written about, look how great Tim or PBC did, because that talent that I'm entrusted in growing them and helping them achieve great career opportunities if i'm not going to the firm i'm going to have that great talent walk out the door pat roach taught me that at the supermarket
0: wow that's great then you go from the supermarket to to pvc and that's a long time ago do you remember your first day on the job oh god
1: yeah june 13th 1988 was my well, first did day you learn job. anything that first day i did um, my um so i came from a very working class family my my mother worked at a supermarket i remember her telling me every day how cold her hands were in the winter Um, how hard it was to work there. My dad worked three jobs and I was the first one to graduate my college at the time. My mother helped me buy my clothes my first day. We went to Sears and (laughs) Roebuck at the Dedham Mall and we bought my clothes and and, I had a couple of nice suits, a couple of really nice polyester ties. And that first day I was really nervous, needless to say. And we were sitting in the training room and, and it was again, June, it was hot as heck. And as the day wore on, it got very, very, very hot. And everybody was taking their jackets off. And as I noticed, everybody taking their jackets off, they all had white, long sleeve cotton shirts on. I knew underneath my jacket, I had a short sleeve polyester shirt on. I was embarrassed, David. I was embarrassed. And um, I ultimately took it off because I was the only one in the room with the suit coat on. And after I took it off, I felt everybody was looking at me. And I felt like I didn't belong. I felt like this is the wrong place for me. I don't fit in. I'm not like the others. At lunchtime, one of the instructors took me down to Filene's basement, which was a department store, and he bought me two white cotton shirts, and he showed me the right ones to wear. That person is now one of my partners today, and that's why I'm here 30 years later, because it's about people. It's about helping people understand Um, the right things, understand how to fit in, keeping your own individual identity at the same time. But most important was about compassion. I love that
0: story. And, And here you are. Now you've climbed the ladder at the top of the organization. What was the biggest obstacle you had to overcome to
1: get to where you're at? I would say, without a doubt, it was the transition of realizing that in your first several years, you can do a lot yourself. For me, it was the realization that if you want to keep progressing, you got to come to the realization you you can't do it all yourself. And for me, that road was bumpy. Quite frankly, uh, there were times where I would I would work, and and again, you need to work hard to be a leader. But there were times where I was working around the clock because I I felt this um, insecure need to do everything myself and to get it done right. Which you can do that at one level, but by the time you get to certain levels and the the responsibility becomes so big. If you don't learn to trust others and give them guidance and let them show what they have, you ultimately will hit a ceiling. And frankly, in my career, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of people hit a ceiling because they can't get over that comfort level. For me, it was growing to understand that. And And I would say my last 10 years, that has been an incredible journey. It's really been rewarding to see so many other people grow which not only contributes to their growth, it contributes to the firm growth as well. But letting go, David, was really hard.
0: You're obviously a, a purpose-driven leader. I mean, how would you define your company's North Star?
1: Yeah, so for, for our, our purpose is building trust in society and solving important problems. And every decision we make, goes through that lens. Every decision. I'll just give you a a recent example, which frankly is still playing out before our eyes. I don't know how this will end. But in mid-March, when we saw the pandemic hit, we knew that the biggest thing on our people's minds was their health of them, their families, and their loved ones. As a professional service firm, there wasn't much I could do for our people there, except say, don't travel, work from home, and we're here if you need us. But the second biggest thing that was on our people's minds was their job scary? We have 55,000 people who are caring for a couple million family members, friends and communities, and we knew economic uncertainty was the second biggest thing on their mind. Um, I got my team on the phone in the webcast um, in the span of a two-week period. I talked to my board and I said, we we need to help our people. like we need to let them know they don't need to worry about their jobs. And we came out at the end of March and we said, we will do layoffs as a last resort. And keep in mind, David. In March, and even sitting here today, we don't know what revenues are going to be. Like the economy is so uncertain, but we made that through the prism of our purpose, which is if we're serious about solving important problems, if we're serious about making sure we're building trust, we owe it to our people to say we're going to do it as an absolute last resort. And as I sit here now, five months into this journey, yeah, the business is is suffering in certain areas, no doubt about it. But our people see that we're leading with our purpose. And we're carrying them. And, and Frank, I hope that pays dividends on the outside, but I can tell you this, they trust us because we're leading from the front. And, and so for me, that purpose statement drives every lens that we go through.
0: Strategy is so important. Yeah. And, and you're in a business that is constantly changing. and has to change with your, with your clients. How do you stay on top of trends? And how do you lead the strategic process
1: as a CEO? Yeah, so uh, we're constantly uh, not only talking with each other, but we're constantly listening to our clients. I, I joke with people, we don't have to be the smartest people in the world. We have to listen to our smartest clients because we have the privilege of, of reaching a thousand companies within the Fortune 1000 because we're constantly dealing with hundreds of startups. We're listening, again, go back to collating data points. So for me, it's not only listening to my team and my people at every level in the organization. It's being on the road constantly up until this world. Now it's virtual. It's listening. It's looking and seeing what's working. And so what, what we realize is that if we listen to our, our clients and, and the people that make up the business community and are the stakeholders, we know what to do. And what's driven our strategy very clearly is we believe the marketplace is telling us three fundamental things. And this has been this way for four years. So this is not a reaction to COVID. The marketplace desperately wants things to be more digital and they've told us that. If we listen, that's what they're telling us. They're also telling us they want more value. Whatever they get from us, they want more value. And they're also telling us that cost matters. Like in a labor-constrained world, again, pre-COVID, you can't keep passing on headcount costs. Those three things, cost, value, digital, that has formed our strategy, and, and we have been resolute in driving that strategy. So the planning process is listening to what the world is telling us, and not just our clients, but the community is our people. And then executing that strategy is constant, constant communication and and laser focus on what matters. One of the hardest parts of my job, honestly, David, is respectfully telling people good idea, but it doesn't fit with where we're going. And we have to be laser focused on what matters. And and for us, that's cost, value, and digital.
0: Tim, you, you deal with all clients. And you said in the supermarket business, you learn the customer's always right. Well, that's not always true, okay? You know, I mean, sometimes you got a real tough client and, and that isn't right. Uh, you know, what can you tell us about your worst client experience and how you handled it?
1: Yeah, so what I would tell you is in, like, in our business, uh, our, our clients pay us and they want our best advice. Um, that doesn't mean we always agree up front. Like our, our best partners are the ones who can present something to a client, a point of view. And, and then and then work with them either to we we re- evolve our point of view or they evolve ours you mean the middle depends on the facts um i had the privilege of of being a partner in the financial crisis and and i would not call it my worst experience i would actually call it my best experience but it was the hardest one it was the hardest one when i was working with this client i had a great team so i i had frankly made the pivot of not doing everything myself and this is important because if i had tried mm-hmm. To do everything myself, we would have surely gotten the wrong answer. So I had grown enough as a leader to know you've got to trust your team. And we saw some challenges. Like we we saw some challenges in there um, at the company. And we worked with the management team at the time. We worked with the board, and, and ultimately over a long period of time, we just couldn't get there. And, and despite trying to get there, trying to help them to see what we saw, and ultimately I had to make a decision. And that like notwithstanding, all the listening and all the consulting. And I didn't go it alone. I ultimately had to make a decision, which at the time was the hardest decision I had ever made in my career, which was simply to tell them, I, I, we and I can't get there. We can't get over to their point of view. And I'll never forget, David, walking back in midtown Manhattan in early February 2008. And I had given the client my final answer after months and months and months of deliberation, intense deliberation, and trying to help get him over to where we were. And I'll never forget feeling like my career was over, like who would want somebody who is that tough and that hard. And I'll never forget going into our office around nine o'clock at night at 300 Madison in New York. And I went up to the 31st floor, which is where my bags were and my desk was. And when I got there, there were 40 people waiting for me. And what I realized is even though I felt alone, I wasn't alone. And surely it was a very challenging client experience, but I realized that evening a couple of things. Number one, I I wasn't alone. Even though I had to make the decision, I had the full firm backing me, including the senior partner at the time was there, the role I have now. It helps me to understand now with 55,000 people, I don't need to make every decision, but I need to back my teams when they do make a decision and have to follow all of our process. If they haven't gone alone. My job is pretty simple. I make sure they follow our process and I support them. And by the way, I'm happy to tell you that that client today is thriving and it's one of my best relationships.
0: (laughs) That's great. You talk about citizen led innovation. What the heck is that?
1: Yeah. So citizen, like it it flips problem solving on its head, I believe, the, the way we need to do it in the 21st century. The 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 way that many of the clients that I serve and and even even I grew up is you're you're collating data points and you make decisions from the top. The reality is many businesses are so far flung and so complicated that we, despite best efforts, sitting in the center, you can't solve everything. But we all have really smart people. What we've tried to do is we empower our people to make decisions on the ground. I, I passionately believe that there's very few decisions somebody can make on the ground, they're going to put us out of business. But if you build a culture of not making decisions at the point of the customer, then you ultimately that culture will put you out of business. So what we've done over the last four years, invested in citizen-led development and citizen-led execution. By the way, David, on my first day of senior partner in 2016, I made the decision to go to jeans. Again, seems pretty obvious today, but with New York being about 25% 25% of our firm that didn't go over too big in New York. Like, you know, wow, I should be wearing jeans, but they're going to, you know, people don't want to see people in jeans. They'll so wear the wrong type of jeans. But I did it because I want to tell our people I trust you. I trust you to make the right decisions. Fast forward, what we've done over the last three years is we have massively empowered our people with technology. We have invested in our people. Like, technology for us in constant digital upskilling is like an employee benefit, like 401k and healthcare. By us teaching our people those skills and empowering them to fix things, the productivity we've seen over the last few years has been staggering because we're empowering our people with skills and then decision rights to identify micro ways of driving things we've never seen before. I passionately believe you teach people to fish, they'll do things the right way and much better than I could ever do sitting in New York.
0: That's great. I, now, I have to ask you when you went to the jean dress code, did did you accelerate the, the sale of short sleeve shirts? Yeah. <laughs>
1: yes. So it was jeans, but it was all types of things. So. Yeah, that's yes. amazing. Everybody's wearing <laughs> short
0: sleeve shirts now. You know, right. I, I understand you had the honor of, of speaking at the commencement at Duke in 2019. I did.
1: Uh, what was the most important thing you told the students? Yeah so um so thank you for that it was it was quite an honor and what i what i told them was at the end of the day you need to know what your moral compass is and the thing you can never get back is your integrity and i asked them to think about some of the big challenges in the world and i talked about where we are in race in the united states and i talked about some of the some of the leaders that we should look look up and admire at and i challenged them to think about what their legacy was going to be and have the courage to make the really hard decisions. I assure them that growth will happen. I assure them that that innovation will happen. But what we need now more than ever is courageous leaders. And again, as you point out, that was in the spring of 2019. Um, And I asked them to really think about what their legacy is gonna be in 30 years, because I truly believe this will be the generation. This will be the generation of people that really lead us to more equality in our society. And I think when you look at talented people like at Duke and all across our country, in our colleges, in our high schools, they'll figure it out if they have the courage to make those decisions. By the way, David, as an aside, we're shooting this on on July 20th. This Saturday, I'm giving the commencement speech and socially distance to my high school um, where I went, <laughs> where, where, by the way, I was in the bottom 25 percent of the class academically. Um, and I'm going to give them the same advice.
0: <laughs> That's good. Well we we share a great academic background together here.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> but t- tell us a story about uh how you go about in-, in inspiring
1: people. Yeah, I it's um it's listening first, it's listening. It is leading from the front. So I'm extremely hands-on. So if we have a tough client situation, I'm right out there. Um I'm leading from the front, I'm talking with the client team, I'm talking with the client and and I'm making sure Part of inspiring is showing that I'm in it with you. I'm not directing from the hill, top of the hill. So for me, that's hugely important. But the other one is, David, there's always problems. Like there's there's always problems out there. Part of me from an inspiration standpoint is, yes, that's a problem. How do we figure it out together? So I, I, I believe in empowerment. You've got to go fix the challenges. Uh, you've got to go fix the problems. Sometimes it's showing people we can fix them together. Like let's work on it. Uh, just as an aside, like this morning, I spent an hour on the phone um, with one of our Black partners who was experienced some challenges. We're inspired to fix them together now. We'll fix them together. So it was taking something very challenging and then saying, OK, break it down to his microsites. When you do that, you show together we can get through things that inspires people. As a firm, you have the great privilege
0: of, of tabulating results for the Oscars. And I have to ask yep. you this, you know, what was it like when you learned that La La Land was incorrectly named the movie of the year instead of Moonlight. Yeah. You know, were you in the audience then, or you yes, know, you um, watching on uh, watching on TV? Or, tell us that story.
1: Yep. So, um, so I had the privilege of of uh, attending that Oscars. That was my first year as senior partner. They're obviously an incredibly important client they trust us with some amazing responsibilities. I thought that was a night off, and uh, my wife and I were sitting in the audience. <laughs> Um, You know, my first year was very intense, a lot of stuff going on and and had planned on that being a nice, relaxing evening, watching the great artists uh, get their awards. Once our people came on stage, I knew we had made a mistake because um, that we don't we don't belong on stage with the the back of the show, the people who shouldn't (laughs) be seen. Uh, We have a very important responsibility and we should stay focused on that. You
0: know, you're in trouble when you see the account. You got it. Yeah, not, some,
1: not a group of people you want on stage. Uh, but David, for me, it was right when they came out, I knew there's a problem. And, and again, through through years and years of development, my mother taught me something, which is when you make a mistake, on up to it. And, and we clearly had made a mistake. And this is, again, an important leadership lesson because uh, within minutes, I was um, on the side of the stage with our teams. We're getting all kinds of advice, didn't have all the facts at this point. But frankly, I knew enough to know we had made a mistake. And I'm very proud of the fact that within a matter of minutes, we were out with a statement that said we owned it, we made a mistake, we're going to get to the bottom of it. And and we did. And and I I think one of the biggest things leaders need to do is simply own up when you make a mistake. And in this case, the Academy was our client. And we clearly made a mistake. And we sat with them publicly and owned the issue. And we've significantly improved our processes going forward. Uh, so for me again, an important leadership lesson, uh, which is when you make a mistake, just own it. Don't don't worry about your brand. Don't worry about legal. Don't worry about risk. You make a mistake, own it. I live by the saying, bad news only gets worse. And and if if make a mistake, own it. Own up to it. And I I felt horrible for the artist uh, who had worked so hard to get that.
0: Tim, it's it's this whole conversation has been so much fun for me, but I, I, like, I want to have a little bit more fun with you yeah. and, and ask you a lightning round of Q&A. Sure. You know, so what would be the three words that best
1: describe you? Um Humble, hardworking and honest. What's your biggest pet peeve? Um, so my biggest pet peeve is when people say we need to be thoughtful when we're debating a problem because <laughs> the implication is that we're not going to be thoughtful.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Who would you want to be for a day and
1: why? Uh, ooh, that's a, uh, wow. I, I would love to be President of the United States for a day. And why? Because I, I think uh, we are the best country in the world and I'd love to tell people that and, and I'd like to see us come together even more to harness the power of this country.
0: What's a random fact
1: about you that few people would know? Uh, my favorite meal that I indulge once a week is a cheeseburger and fries and one Bud Light. <laughs> Do you have a hidden talent? Um, I'm not sure I would say I have a hidden talent, except I, I am a really, I'm a really, really good listener. You
0: know, I understand you're a marathoner. What was your best time?
1: Oh, uh, my best time was 3:58:31 in the Chicago Marathon. You beat me by 15 minutes. So
0: that's, that's great. I was in the New York Marathon. So, um, so what's something about Ireland you'd only know if you had parents who grew up there?
1: Um, one of the biggest things you would know is that um, the, the culture is incredibly hardworking and there's no sympathy. Just quick story. I broke my collarbone when I was in high school playing hockey in Canada. I spent eight hours in the hospital getting it set. My dad, we came home that Sunday night. And my mother took my arm and moved it up and down and said, it's not that bad. <laughs> so we, we don't get a lot of sympathy being from Ireland. <laughs> now, you
0: mentioned your mother taught you that when you make a mistake, you know, own up to it. Okay. What's the single most
1: important thing your father taught you? Um, my, my father taught me is not don't go looking for praise. Like, like you have a job to do, go do it. Like, you're, this isn't about getting praise no matter what you're doing. My father once said to me when I came in from cutting the grass and I was looking for praise and he goes, he goes, thanks for doing your job. <laughs> and so there's no. <laughs> sounds
0: like a, a really good, tough Irish family. <laughs> yes. You know, yes. That's great. I love that. You
1: know, what would be three bits of advice, uh, Tim, you would give to aspiring leaders? I would first uh, ask everybody to recognize your integrity is most important. And, and large or small, we're all going to get our integrity tested. It could be. Watching a coworker be treated unfairly, it could be a tough customer situation. Somebody might ask you to do something. Respect the fact that your integrity is yours, and do everything you can to protect it and grow it. That'd be my first one. The second one, David, work hard. Like achieving great things and being a leader, there's a certain amount of time you have to put in. Don't be afraid to work hard. And the last one is be optimistic. Nobody wants to follow pessimists. There are. Dozens and dozens and dozens of problems in our world today. Leaders are not the ones looking down on the ground and kicking the dirt and saying this stinks. Leaders are the ones who say yes, that's a problem. Let's fix it, and make it better. Be optimistic, and people will follow you. Balance is is so important in business. I
0: mean, you yeah. this is one of the things that you do. You know, uh, you help your clients. You know, balance
1: their books, make sure everything's right. You know, how do you make it happen in your personal life? Yeah. Yes. Um, so you have to work at it. I, I've shared with many people uh, balances like pushing a rock up a hill. Like if someone can make it sound easy, but I, I almost wonder whether they're being intellectually honest. You have to work at it every day. And if you're pushing a rock up a hill, the second you stop, it'll run right over. And you need to appreciate the fact that it's just like staying in shape during a marathon. You've got to constantly stay in shape to do it. So you've got to work at it. And I work at it every day. And I have. I have six children. They're ages 12 to 20. Um, And if I'm not constantly working at that, it'll overtake me. So it's constant work. I've grown and I wish I was more confident when I was younger and earlier in my career. I've grown to be more disciplined with my calendar. So I don't have this utopia where I make everything. But the things that are important to me are in my calendar. And my calendar is set a year in advance. And the schools that my kids go to, they they must think I'm insane because we're calling in in August to find out what's going to happen in April. So massively disciplined with the calendar. And I've come to come to appreciate I've got to invest in myself. And, and that means finding time to make sure I shut down. So I'm way more disciplined in my vacation, my weekends, than I used to be And a combination of those three things, constant working, very deliberate planning and having the confidence to shut down throughout different times during the year is really important. I take a week's vacation every quarter. I would have never done that 10 years ago. I would encourage people to do that. Who
0: was uh, the last person you recognized and why? Um, I would say this partner
1: I, I spoke to this morning, and, and uh, he had gone through a very difficult time. And at the end of it, I thanked him for what he's doing. I thanked him for persevering. I thanked him for sticking through. I think you've got to constantly recognize people who are going through, who, who accomplish things or who have gone through challenging times. I, for me, um, when people achieve a successful outcome, you know, applying a new piece of technology, winning a new client, making a hard decision around quality, I want to recognize those but it's even people who just like survive through a tough day and you've got to recognize them. I've learned over time, a pat in the back, a recognition goes way longer than than anything else. And um, I recognize this partner I spoke to this morning for an hour.
0: Well, Tim, I think, you know, thank you. I don't know if it's one word or two words. I think that's the most powerful thing you can say to anybody when you see them really doing a good job. It's just a powerful, powerful phrase that needs to be said more often. And I want to thank you for just being so open and honest and and giving us your your leadership insights today. Appreciate
1: it very much. Thank you, Dave, for having you. Thank you for your work. Take care of yourself.
0: Well, I have to tell you, I really appreciate the people at PWC who spoke up and sparked that conversation in 2016. And I appreciate that Tim was willing to listen to his team and then pivot his whole company to focus on diversity and inclusion. Listening takes courage and time and empathy and true humility to see the wisdom of someone else's perspective. And now it's time for me to give you a little coaching. This week, as part of your weekly personal development plan, I've got a fun challenge for you. And this one might even test you. Look at your calendar and pick one meeting where you know there's going to be a discussion about an important decision. Then during that meeting, don't offer your opinion. Just listen. Ask questions. Draw out the wisdom and perspective of your team. I think you're going to be amazed at how much you learn and how much better prepared you're going to be when it comes time to make the decision. Give it a try. So do you wanna know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders listen to different perspectives. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday, you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.